All right. Uh, so great to see all of you. I invite you now to take out your study guys as we get ready. Your Bibles too, if you have them. We are uh, a church that believes in uh, bringing your Bible to church with you. And we think that means something, whether it's your Bible Bible or it's, it's okay. It's a little bit of a cop out, but it's okay if you have a Bible in your device, whatever. That's okay too. But uh, we take the Bible seriously. So get all that ready and uh, just pray with me. Uh, God, we thank you for today and thank you for this chance to worship you. And really, we're just humbled right now at the glory of your creation, the splendor of everything we see around us. And we're just in awe of who you are. God, we don't know everything. We may never know everything on this earth, but uh, we want to know you a little bit more today. So that's our prayer in Jesus name. Amen. All right. Uh, big week in Houston. How about those Astros? We pulled it together. Uh, we are playoff bound. It looks like we're at least going to have one extra game. So it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And so I feel like I'm responsible for that since I moved to Houston this year and uh, suddenly they're good. So you're welcome. And uh, yeah, I did the same thing for the Royals. It only took me 13 years to do it in Kansas City. So, uh, so it's great. It's, uh, it's going to be a great day. And, and thank you all for being here. If you're a newcomer, first time here, just thank you so much for being a part of the story today. We are in the middle of a sermon series called God Loves Science. And so today we're going to be talking about three myths that are uh, perpetuated um, in our culture that uh, falsely divide science and faith. So we're going to talk about those today. I am uh, recovering from being sick all week. I didn't have my voice until this morning. So... Um, <laughs> Uh, it was a tough week for me. The best week uh, Giovanna's had in a while, though. So that was, uh, that was good for her, uh, but I'm glad, I'm glad to be back. So, um, all right. Uh, we are going to just dig right in um, because we've got a lot of ground to cover today. First of all, um, we have, uh, I, I want to revisit this thing we talked about last, uh, or two weeks ago, scientism. If you were here two weeks ago, you remember we talked about scientism and we shared the definition of scientism. And the reason this is such an important place to begin again is because I want us to be sure we're differentiating between science and scientism. Because science and faith have no problem with one another. Scientism and faith have become real enemies in our culture today. Scientism wants to put belief in God to, to rest, really wants to kill, destroy, move past belief in God. Science is objective about these things. Science is indifferent about belief in God, really good science. Scientism takes it a step further. It is an exaggerated trust in the efficacy of the methods of natural science applied to all areas of investigation. Oh, are we just now getting those study guides out? All right, uh, the study guides are being passed out. Those are really, really important today. So um, I'm glad they found those <laughs> and they're being passed out. Hopefully everybody can, uh, can uh, use those today. So scientism is an exaggerated trust in the methods of science to answer questions science was never designed to answer. Does that make sense? So good scientists know scientism when they see it. Good scientists call out scientism and, and are very clear that that is not real science. And so I want to make it clear that we are differentiating those two things because scientism has become a brand new religion in our culture. And the only reason I'm giving any floor time to scientism 
and the hateful priests and proselytizers of this new religion, Scientism, is because they're making inroads in our community. It's because one of the fastest growing religious segments in America is the non-religious segment. And a lot of that is because the proponents of Scientism are making converts. They are evangelists about their scientism. They are proactive. And the church, the church I know, has been bleeding smart young people for a generation now because we're losing the, the, the dialogue battle. We're not making as compelling a case for what we believe as the priests of scientism are for what they believe. But it is in every way a religion. They do try to convert people to their frame of mind. There are priests uh, in this uh, religious sort of cult that's taking shape of scientism. They ask for money. The priests get very rich off of this movement, and they write books and all this. It's, it's just like a religion, um, but they say they hate um, religion. And so that's where these three myths we're going to talk about come from today uh, as we talk about faith and science. It's from scientism. It is from militant atheism. Those two things are basically the same thing. Um, and, and so uh, even though what they're saying is shallow, what they're saying is illogical, because they say it with big words and because they say it with British accents, people believe what they're saying. Like, I wish to high heaven I could say what I'm going to tell you today in a British accent. All of you would go home converted completely to Christianity because there's something more believable about a British accent. But you can say the most ridiculous, shallow thing in a British accent and everybody believes you. And many of the proponents of scientism have some sort of accent and everybody goes, oh, that sounds really smart. If you just read it in a book somewhere, you'd go, that makes no sense whatsoever. It's just the accent, man. I wish I could just turn on an accent and, and be as convincing as these guys uh, are. And so I'm tired, 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 sick and tired of young Christians, smart young Christians being led away in their uh, early life by this pseudo compelling argument of scientism. I'm here to say it's not going to change culturally. That's going to be the trend. Many of you don't watch the YouTube debates that I watch between scientism and Christianity. Some of you I think I'm just going to totally geek out on this conversation today, and I am, because it's my favorite thing in the world to do and to talk about. It's my hobby, and that's really sick. I know. Pray for me. But I'm telling you, this is the direction of things in our culture. This is not going away. It's going to keep trending in this direction, and scientism is very much on the move in our backyard. It's not a boogeyman. I just want to deconstruct some of it today, Okay. So there's three myths that I really, really want to talk about in terms of scientism as it relates to faith. The first one is uh, the myth that religion poisons everything. You've heard some variation of this myth. Religion poisons everything. Religion is the reason for most of the world's ills. Historically, religion was the cause of most of the world's wars. You've heard all these things bandied about as though they're facts. Did anyone in this room, when you heard these things, actually go home and do the homework? Uh, to check this out. It's sort of a culturally accepted norm. Yeah, religion really is uh, a source of most of the world's ills. That's kind of something even religious people kind of accept and apologize for. Next week, we're going to talk about the need for Christians to apologize for when the church has gotten things wrong. But to make these broad sweeping statements like religion poisons everything is to take it a step further in an attempt to make converts away from religions like Christianity to the religion of scientism. One of the priests of uh, the scientism movement is now uh, passed away. 
his name is Christopher Hitchens. Uh, he is one of the guys with the nice British accents, and he talks with a scotch glass in his hands. So everybody thought he was telling the truth, and I don't know why, but, uh, but he wrote a book called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And in the clip that I'm about to show you, he elaborates on uh, this uh, subtitle, uh, why religion is the cause of all the world's problems, violence, oppression, and war. I hope we have this clip ready to go. This is Christopher Hitchens. I think that the cult of faith and the, the, the instinct to worship and to prostrate ourselves, to, to practice religion or have it practiced upon us, in other words, is, is uh, poisonous of everything because it, it attacks us in our, our deepest and most intimate and essential integrity. It says to us, in effect, that we don't have free will, and that we don't have the right to decide for ourselves on what is right. We can't tell a right action. People say to me, not realizing how insulting the question is, how would you have morals if it wasn't for God? How would you know? Uh, I pause here just to say, and I think on the campus of a, of a university named for Roger Williams, uh, I, it'll be readily intelligible, why I think that's insulting. Uh, one of the reasons, I think, is, is this. If I'm hearing this from one of the um, practitioners of organized religion, I'm not going to grant them the assumption that they so readily make in their own favor, that they already know by being Christian or Muslim or Jewish more about morality than I do. I mean, shouldn't it be that those who practice organized religion should begin by making a few apologies for themselves on this score? How dare they say? That, that I'm on their turf when we're talking about ethics and morality. It isn't I who mandate things like the mutilation of the genitals of children, for example, which is in all cases a, a religious commandment. It isn't I who ask for suicide and murder to be fused into one action in the name of God. The suicide-murder community is almost exclusively, not absolutely 100%, but very nearly exclusively a, a, a God-fearing and faith-based one. How, how dare the assumption be made that we can't talk about these things without a license from some kind of church? All right. Uh, so this is uh, Christopher Hitchens. And the, this is the kind of voice that is being heard loud and clear by your friends or your kids or your kids' friends. That, that This is the kind of argument that's being made uh, to discredit r religion and faith, all right? So there's a couple of really ironic things about uh, the clip we just saw. The first is that Hitchens would uh, evoke the name of Roger Williams, which is where he was speaking, Roger Williams University, to make his point when Roger Williams was a Christian who loved Jesus and believed that the church had gotten it wrong at times, but he also was the first abolitionist in North America. If Roger Williams had gotten his way, there never would have been any of the slave trade brought to North America. If Roger Williams had gotten his way, he was the one that stood up and said, Native Americans should be the only ones that have the right to sell property in the new world because he loved Jesus and because his love for Jesus led him to understand that in, in, in God, everyone is created with inherent worth. Every person, regardless of where they're from or what color their skin is, is, is a reflection of the image of God. It was his theology that led him to be an abolitionist, just like all the other famous abolitionists that we know of. I can't think of one atheist abolitionist who stood up and said, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. It was Will Wilberforce. It was people uh, like, uh, like, like Roger Williams that 
led the way in that regard. The other ironic thing about, uh, not this clip, but about Christopher Hitchens in general, is that in 2009, when he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer, after that, he spent more than half of his time here in Houston. Flew halfway around the world to be here in Houston, half the time at uh, MD Anderson, I believe, where he was treated for his stage four esophageal cancer by Dr. Francis Collins. Dr. Collins is a former atheist who became a Christian in adulthood. He is a physicist. He also led the Human Genome Project in the 90s, mapped out the whole human genome. Um, and he is a born-again Christian who became a Christian in adulthood, not because he was raised to be a Christian, because he decided later on the merits of the facts before him to become a Christian. Now, my question for Dr. Hitchens, if I see him in heaven, which I hope I do see Dr. Hitchens in heaven, as ironic as that might sound to some of you, I hope he's there so I can ask him this question. If it's true that people uh, who are smart and, uh, and intelligent, like Dr. Hitchens, if it's true that people who are religious have somehow uh, uh, compromised, as Dr. Hitchens says, their most intimate, most essential integrity, why would he have ever flown halfway across the world to put his hands in, his life in the hands of a born-again Christian who was famous for writing one of my favorite books, The Language of God? Why, why would he do that? If you had been diagnosed with stage four cancer, would you put your life in the hands of a doctor that you knew had compromised his essential, his most essential integrity? Of course not. So there is a, there is a glaring hypocrisy in the words of people like Christopher Hitchens because things like logic and facts don't really matter. They are hell-bent on discrediting the things other people believe. No matter what it takes to do that, they're going to spread lies and they're going to prove text and they're going to they're smear campaign us until they've made Christianity sound completely ludicrous. And, and so uh, they hide behind science to do just that. It's really not hard to debunk this myth, going back to the myth of uh, religion poisons everything. Two points um, really quickly. The first point uh, to debunk the first myth is uh, that there is the problem of all the good religious people do in the world. If religion poisons everything, our most uh, essential integrity, how do we explain all the amazing good things happening in the name of God here in Houston and throughout the world? Um, because you'd be hard-pressed to find an atheist soup kitchen downtown Houston tomorrow morning. You'd be hard-pressed to, to find uh, any uh, effort in this uh, crowd to, to serve those who are socially beaten down or beneath uh, them. If a tragedy strikes, a tsunami or an earthquake strikes in some other part of the world, the president of that country doesn't pick up the phone and call atheist headquarters here in the United States. Who does he call? He calls the United Methodist Committee on Relief. He calls Catholic Charities. He calls the Red Cross. He calls Compassion International because it's Christians, people of faith, who come running when other people they don't even know are in trouble. And we flood people with love and compassion and grace and care. Even though we don't know them, we're not connected to them, we don't have the same bloodlines as them, maybe not the same religion as them, we don't care. Because our understanding of theology leads us to know and believe that every single person has inherent worth and is worthy of saving, worthy of helping. It's theology that leads us to behave in this way. I called six Texas prisons this week really randomly. I just thought, I'm just going to call a bunch of prisons today. And, uh, and I called six 
Texas prisons, I asked them to share with me about the groups of people that come and talk to inmates. Who is it that cares for inmates, that makes friends of inmates, whether they're long-term death row inmates or whether they're about to transition out? What kinds of people come and share? And through the six prisons, I got the names of 28 Christian groups, four uh, uh, Muslim groups and four Jewish groups <coughs> that minister with these prisoners. And then I asked each one, tell me about the atheist groups that you have coming to take care of prisoners. And every time, every, all six times, I just was met with this awkward four-second silence on the other end, followed by, um, what? Because the thought of it is completely outlandish to people on the front lines who see things happening every day. Here's why. I'm not, if you're an atheist or an agnostic person, I, I don't want to be insulting here. I'm just saying that Studies have shown that when a culture divorces itself from any notion of God, when a culture decides God is not going to be a part of who we are, it takes on a different ethic, an ethic apart from a divine religious ethic, an ethic that, uh, that looks usually one of two ways. There's utilitarianism and there's consequentialism. These are the two ways that uh, atheistic cultures have gone historically. Utilitarianism is defined as the belief that you're ethically bound to do whatever will result in the greatest good for the greatest number of people. That sounds really good, right? Hold on just a minute. Consequentialism is that the idea that the ends justify the means. A morally right act will produce a good outcome. Both of these sound decent on the outset, but there are glaring problems with both. First of all, the problem with consequence or with utilitarianism is that it's basically the argument that slave owners used to keep slavery legal for as long as they did. You think slave owners, the, the story that scientism folks will tell you is that it was the Bible that kept slaves in their place. The Bible never really says, you shall hold slaves. You know, it, it, the Bible accepts culture as it is in some ways and defines how people of faith should treat slaves kindly and gently. And, and actually, actually, at certain points, it says to release slaves, <clears throat> that God's will is for the captives to be freed. That's a biblical theme you won't hear people say very often. It wasn't the Bible that kept slaves in their place. It was utilitarianism. It was the argument that without the slaves, our economy would fall apart. Without the slaves, America would descend into chaos. And you know what? It's slave, slavery is actually better for the slaves. It's a better situation here than they had back in Africa. It's utilitarianism. It's the best. Now, who gets to define what these things are, what the greatest good is? That's up in the air. It's usually those with power. But this is where we go ethically. One of two places we go ethically. The other one is consequentialism which has its own set of problems. And just to share one rather extreme issue with consequentialism that actually bears itself out in our culture today. <clears throat> it has to do with abortion. And I don't really, I'm not super comfortable talking about abortion. But the fact that over 20% of pregnancies in America end in abortion and over 40% of unwanted pregnancies do I feel like it's something we have to talk about, and I'm just going to, two minutes here, and I will preface this by saying, if you've been down this road, I love you, and you have a home here with, with this church and with Jesus, all can be forgiven. It's going to be okay. I've just got to say this in terms of what consequentialists think 
about abortion. Consequentialists, diehard consequentialists would say that abortion is okay in terms of unwanted, ending an unwanted pregnancy, not just one that began with rape or incest or not just one that threatens the mother's life. Any pregnancy that's unwanted could be and should be maybe ended with an abortion. Because they will say, since Roe v. Wade, the crime rate, poverty rate, other indicators have gotten a lot better because all those unwanted babies never saw the light of day. They never grew up to become, you know, criminals on welfare. And so, look, society is better. It is a right act producing a good outcome. But who gets to discern and decide what a right act is, what a good outcome is, and for whom? This is a dangerous, dangerous territory when we forfeit transcendent ethics, divine ethics, for these two things, utilitarianism and consequentialism. The second point I'm going to make to debunk the first myth is that non-religious people, just like religious people, non-religious people do terrible things. Some non-religious people do awful, oppressive, hateful Violent things, just like some religious people do. It doesn't take much to prove this point. Atheistic governments have historically been more violent, more uh, bloodthirsty than their theistic counterparts. Stalin is the example everyone goes to here, and I don't want to just use him as the only example, but he's the most obvious one. Stalin led an atheistic regime in the Soviet Union, uh, divorced the Russian people from God and said, we are not going to do that here. And he was guilty for tens of millions of deaths. I know religion has been accused of being manipulative toward people, and certainly religion has manipulated people. People, Religious people have been manipulative. But Stalin perfected it, man. I came across this quote in a book called Waiting to be Heard. <clears throat> this is written by Polish Christians who immigrated to the Soviet Union. It says, one day, the teacher, this was in a classroom uh, in the Soviet Union during the Stalin regime, the teacher asked the children if they believed in God. Only Polish children raised their hands. Next, the teacher asked them to pray for bread. After a short wait, the teacher said, no bread, no God. She then asked, who believes in Stalin? The Russian children raised their hands. The teacher asked them to pray to Stalin for bread. Immediately, a woman entered the classroom carrying a tray with slices of bread, which was distributed only to the children praying to Stalin. So religion is the problem? If this happens in a world free, in a culture free from religion? And it doesn't end with Stalin. Obviously, this was the same issue that was going on with Pol Pot in Cambodia. It's the same issue happening in China today where religion is basically illegal, and yet you've got all these humanitarian crises in spite of the absence of organized religion. You've still got horrible human rights uh, situations there. You've got workplace situations where people would rather jump out of a building than go back to work. You, you've got... Uh, uh, environmental situation where they have to show the sunset on a TV screen in Beijing because no one remembers what the sun looks like, free from religion, free from God. Society doesn't get any better. In fact, it's been proven to get worse. Here's what I want to say. It turns out religious people do awful things. Non-religious people do awful things. It turns out people of faith 
are broken, people of no faith are broken. It's almost as if we're all infected by the same disease. It's almost as if we're all broken. It's almost as if we all come this way, which should sound familiar to us as Christians. We have an explanation for this. This is exactly what we would expect to find in the world, brokenness inside the church and outside. Psalm 51.15 says, I was born guilty. I was a sinner in the womb. Now, some people will say, but children are innocent. Children aren't sinners. Children are sweet. If you're saying those things in your head right now, you have not spent enough time around children. And I am not even being facetious. Go down the hall to the two-year-old classroom and watch how they treat each other. No one taught them to snatch and slap and cry and, you know, fight. No one taught them to be selfish and envious. And yet they come this way. They come flawed. They come broken. We would expect this. John 8, 34, Jesus says, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. And then Romans 3, 23 says, everyone has sinned. Everyone's enslaved to this disease. And so the myth is that religion poisons everything. The truth we believe is that sin poisons everything, including religion, which Jesus knew. Jesus would agree with those who say religion is broken. I believe religion is broken. Do y'all believe religion is broken? Amen, we believe that. But it's not because of religion, it's because of sin. It's because of people. And so we fall short, all of us, and sin poisons everything, including religion and science. Let's move on to the second myth. Some of y'all are like, wow, that was one of three. We're going to be here till two o'clock. I promise that's the longest one. That's the longest one. Okay, we're going to keep going. Uh, so follow along with me in your, uh, in your study guide. The second myth, the Bible is anti-science. Another variation of this is the Bible is anti-evolution. You'll hear people say this a lot to make the case that Christians are antiquated and anti-intellectual. You can't be smart and spiritual, remember? from our first week, okay? So how many of you remember uh, when we talked about Leviticus for four weeks? Raise your hands. Okay, uh, let me ask you a different way. How many of you remember when I brought those goats to church that time? There we go, okay, good. That was Leviticus, all right? That was the Leviticus series. And I talked then about the same thing I'm gonna tell you now, which is that I believe that while Leviticus is raked over the coals in our culture today as some kind of an outdated, antiquated, hateful book, I think Leviticus at its time 3,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago, represented the best scientific thinking of its day. I think when we look at the dietary restrictions in Leviticus, I, I don't think when God says, eat this, not that, I don't think it's because Moses hears a voice from heaven saying, thou shalt not have any bacon or Bacon-wrapped shrimp, that's all for me. You know, I don't, think that's what, I don't think that's what Moses hears. I think the way those laws make the cut and make it into the Bible is by the smartest men and women in, in the tribe observing life for generations and, say, and making decisions about what's healthy and what's not. I think it looked like this. I think it was uh, the smartest people in the tribe gathering together without a campfire and looking over at Bubba. You know Bubba. Bubba. He eats bacon every day. And he looks terrible. He looks like he could die at any minute. And then we got Nancy over here. And Nancy's been eating vegetables. Nancy never eats a pig. She's never touched a dead body. You know, all these things. <laughs> she's, 
She's 37 years old. She's the oldest person our tribe has ever seen. Maybe, maybe we should all eat like Nancy eats. Maybe that's what God wants for us. If we're created in the image of God and God wants us to live and be prosperous and live great lives and God has a plan for our tribe to reach the world, maybe we should stop eating what Bubba eats. You see how this is rudimentary, but it was the same kind of scientific process testing things. And I think the same things, the same reasons lie behind the quarantine rules in Leviticus. You know, when you've got something oozing out of some wound or something, you should probably be alone for a while. Let's just not have you around the rest of us, if that's okay. You know, the quarantine laws, the, the, some of the laws around uh, sexuality, some of the laws uh, 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 around um, uh, medication. And, it, you know, it's the first written health code in human history. The other thing that we find in Leviticus and really throughout the Old Testament is this idea of Sabbath rhythm. And again, I think we have conceptualized this as some sort of edict from on high, an arbitrary rule. God says, thou shalt not work on the seventh day. Like, what if I want to work on the seventh? You know, that kind of, it feels arbitrary. We want to rebel against it. And then science comes along behind the Sabbath rule and says, you know what? The human body, most of its functions really do function on a seven-day rhythm. Now, I'm not saying that's a told you so for Christians or anything. I'm not saying we should get arrogant about this. But repeatedly, we find this kind of thing where science comes in behind it and goes, you know what? Those guys were right. The human blood pressure, the human heart rate, the, the toxicity level in your, in your bloodstream, uh, the, all sorts of uh, your body's systems reset every seventh day. And there's something to that for all biological life, the seven-day rhythm, not just human life. There is some wisdom to it. Now, is that a religious law being passed down for no reason, or was this the product of testing and proving things over generations of time? That's what I'm asking. So, I believe that science exists in the Bible. Paul tells Timothy at one point, you know, Timothy, stop drinking so much water. The water is making you sick. Drink some wine. Paul knew that wine acted as, uh, as uh, what's the word I'm looking for? What? Yeah, something I can't hear y'all. But yeah, whatever y'all said. And, uh, and, and it, it, it helps you to heal. You know, whenever, you're, whenever the water's filthy, wine will stabilize you. And uh, Paul uh, knew that. He tells his friend Timothy that. So, I think science exists in the Bible. And and then the next question is always, but isn't the Bible anti-evolution? If it's anti-evolution, all the scientists I respect believe that all of human life, all of life on earth evolved from a single cell organism. If the Bible is anti-evolution, then I can't believe in it. But saying that the Bible is anti-evolution is short-sighted, unfair, and kind of illogical. The theory of evolution didn't exist when the Bible was being written. And many people have written articles and stories about how the Bible's creation narrative actually lines up pretty well with uh, the evolution story. If you really want to try to match that up, I'm not really concerned about matching it up because I don't read Genesis that way. I don't need for those things to match. But to say the Bible is anti-evolution or say the Bible uh, you know, denies evolution is, is ridiculous. The idea of evolution didn't exist then. It's like saying the Bible denies 
the existence of tofu, or like the Bible denies the existence of frozen yogurt or pumpkin spice lattes. Just because the Bible doesn't say that they exist doesn't mean Christians don't believe in it. You know what I'm saying? Like there's all sorts of things we believe in that the Bible doesn't make uh, abundant, you know, mention of. And so it's kind of, uh, it's kind of silly for us to get hung up on uh, that argument. So what I want you to hear is that the Bible calls Christians to be smart. The Bible calls Christians to study. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your mind, not just with your feelings, not just with your soul. God wants us to grow in our intellect. Proverbs 1.5 says, let the intelligent person or the wise person continue to learn in their adulthood. 2 Peter 1.5 says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and your virtue with knowledge. Christians, keep growing. Don't perpetuate the hypothesis uh, that Christians you know, are, are um, shallow or anti-intellectual. Keep reading. Do your homework. I've given you a list of resources that I use to make this uh, put this sermon series together. It's in your study guides. I hope you will use those and, and put them uh, to good use. Um, finally, uh, to wrap this point up, uh, the physicist Stephen Jay Gould, who was either an atheist or an agnostic, depending on which day you asked him, he died uh, several years ago. Stephen Jay Gould said this about his fellow scientists. He said, either half my colleagues are enormously stupid or else the science of Darwinism is fully compatible with conventional religious beliefs and equally compatible with atheism. This is from, this is from the mind of a world-renowned physicist. All right. Uh, so the truth to this myth is that while some will say the Bible is anti-science, good theology and good science form an alliance against ignorance and suffering. Good theology and good science form an alliance against ignorance and suffering. All right, let's move on to the third myth I want to address today. This is the myth that science has buried God. This is one of the favorite mantras of the scientism movement. Science has buried God. Another way of saying this is that all the evidence we have in the universe points toward atheism. All the evidence points toward atheism. Lawrence Krauss is another one of the priests of the scientism cult, and uh, he is also a uh, physicist. He is also uh, quite arrogant, and he makes me crazy when I watch him talk um, because he looks like a rat, and, uh, well, he's kind of a rat, so I guess it works, uh, but uh, Krauss says this. Uh, it, actually, he, I wanted to mention, he wrote an article you can check out. He wrote an article last month uh, in the New Yorker called All Scientists Should Be Militant Atheists. Uh, and uh, he was asked in a debate recently, is there anything, anything that would make you change your mind about God? Krauss, a scientist who should always be open to the possibilities evidence presents, says yes, any empirical evidence whatsoever because there is none. This is the arrogance of uh, the other side I'm talking about, okay? So, um, Krauss is right in as much as the existence of God cannot be proven. But that's only part of the story because you also cannot prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is no intelligence behind the order of the universe. You can't prove these things one way 
or another. There's no definitive proof anyone can offer. And so what we're left to do as thinking people is use our minds and follow the clues. And there are plenty of clues um, that I've shared with you some about in my own journey from atheism back to Christianity. It was the clues that led me back, clues of faith, uh, clues that really, um, while they're not proofs, taken on the whole, they are quite convincing. I've listed them out in your study guides, some of them. Um, the first one uh, that I've listed here is the regularity of nature. No one really knows why nature is the way it is. No one really knows why the constants of nature don't change. Uh, science, uh, the practice of science, takes it on faith that the laws of nature, the laws of physics, just will stay the same forever. Nobody really knows why they will. There's really no good reason to believe that they will. Uh, that's why I, I'm adamant about science being an act of faith, because we trust that these things that we depend on, things like gravity, for example, won't change from one day to the next. Um, we've been here on earth for a blink of an eye. And so you can't just say, well, it's always been that way. You know, we've been here for a tiny fraction of time compared to the age of the universe. And so we don't really know anything, but we take it on faith that nature will continue to be regular in the way that we understand it. There's the question of beauty and longing. Is our longing for something more, which seems to be a, a universal human experience when you hear a great uh, uh, orchestra or you hear a song on the radio or you look into your lover's eyes or you look into your child's eyes or whatever, is, is that sense of longing real? And if so, does it reflect something within us that goes beyond the things this world can provide that spiritual hunger that seems to be a universal human um, truth. Um, and then we have uh, what I have called the nerd clue, TM. I put the TM here because I coined this phrase this week. Uh, all these others are other people's ideas. The nerd clue is mine. So I just wanted to be known that uh, no one else can write a book about this without paying me first, okay? The nerd clue is basically there are way too many extremely brilliant scientists and other people, philosophers and doctors and all these other people with great minds that have chosen in adulthood to believe in God. And many of them have become committed Christians. And I can't logically accept Krauss's assertion that there is absolutely no evidence that uh, that God exists if so many brilliant minds have chosen to believe that God does exist. And many of those minds are, those people are listed on your uh, study guides for you to look up and, uh, and research as well. Um, uh, there's the idea of contingency. Everything else that we know in the universe is contingent on something else. There was an outside cause that brought about its existence. And so it would seem as though the universe also is contingent. And the question remains, what brought it about or whom? Does that make sense? Uh, and there's the question of the Big Bang and the divine spark and all that. The most compelling argument is the fine-tuning argument, which basically states that it feels and seems and looks and appears as though the universe uh, was created with human life in mind. It seems as though there's a design and there was a plan. Even atheists kind of uh, punt on this one and they will say, we don't really know what to do 
with fine-tuning. We don't know why. For example, as Eric Metaxas points out in one of his books, he says there are 200 of these constant, 200 things that must remain steady exactly as they are, 200 different measurables that make life, biological life on earth possible. And if you were to envision those 200 things as dials that were set just precisely so to make our life on earth possible, if you moved any of those 200 dials, any one of them in a fraction of a direction either way, all the other 199 dials would be thrown off and there would be no life to speak of. Scientists, mathematicians have looked at this data and said it is statistically impossible that life on earth would come about. It's a statistical impossibility. John Polkinghorne, a Christian, brilliant Christian uh, thinker, said that this fine-tuning argument is it's too extraordinary, too remarkable to just discount as some happy accident. Atheists also have no idea what to do with this, and I love what I came across this week. Richard Dawkins is the leader of the militant atheist scientism movement. Some of you know about Richard Dawkins and his book, The God Delusion. Here's what he said recently in an interview. He said, explaining away, fine-tuning, he said, it could be at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization evolved to a very high level of technology and designed a form of life they seeded onto this planet. You see, as a way of getting around admitting the possibility that God might exist, the smartest, most prominent, most famous priest of of atheism and scientism would rather say, I think aliens did it. I think... I think it was aliens that came and planted us here. He would rather say the plot of the movie Prometheus is more compelling and more possible and plausible than the existence of a God who intelligently created and designed the universe. This is the extent to which they will resort to discredit what we believe to be true. So the myth, uh, the third myth was that science has buried God. And the truth is that while God's existence can be proven or disproven, evidence points towards some intelligent force, some divine spark behind the universe. So I want to end with this. I just want to tell all of you who are believers, those of you who are Christians, you're born again, and you're convinced, you do not have my permission to take anything you heard today and go prove all your Facebook friends wrong. This isn't an excuse for you to become the kind of Christian that creates more atheists. I have had it with the church becoming an atheist factory because that's what we are when we act like we have it all figured out and we get arrogant about it. That's not what we're doing. Don't take the facts I've shared with you to the Thanksgiving table in November and put all your nephews in their place or whatever. You know, don't, don't feel compelled to do that. Be gentle, be humble. Take on the spirit of Christ. Be a servant to other people. Say, I love you more often. Uh, And and, uh, when relationships are built, when trust is built, it's okay to share these kinds of beliefs in that context. But don't see it as your place to prove everyone wrong. And finally, those of you who are on the fence, I know the story is full of them. Those of you who are on the fence of faith, you're skeptics, you're agnostics, you're atheists, 
You really, in your past, maybe you've had some bad experience with Christian types of people. And you have a notion to believe based on what we've talked about today or based on something going on in your own life. The, the, the one thing I didn't mention in the list of evidence earlier was your personal experience. I think that's the most powerful one sometimes. Some of you know there's been a nagging tug at your heart to give your life to something bigger than yourself, to live for something more than consequentialism or utilitarianism, to invest your life and leave a legacy that matters. Some of you know you're here for more than just whatever feels right or feels good to you. You know it. And I'm just praying today, and I wish I could say this with a British accent. I am praying today that this will be the moment you surrender to what you've always known. That this will be a safe place for you to know that if you say yes to Jesus today, there will be no I told you so's. There will be no shaming of your past. There will be none of that because we've all been there. I've been there. But you know there's more to this universe. You know what I discovered in my own journey, that it's true there is an intelligence behind the universe. And, and if that's true, then maybe Jesus really is who he said he is. And if Jesus is who he said he is, then God is not just some distant watchmaker who set everything in place and then stands at a distance. God is a God who comes near, who cares about you intimately. You see the step you can take from just saying yes to believing in God. You'll find yourself believing professing what you've always sensed all along. There is a God who transcends what we can see and hear every day. A God who cares for you personally, knows every hair on your head. A God who lived for you, a God who died for you, and a God who created you so he could know you in relationship. My prayer today is that you will say yes, not to religion, not to Methodism, not to Christianity, to God, to relationship. Would you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for teaching us what it means to believe in you. It truly is beyond religious practice and ritual. Humble us, God, those of us who believe, humble us. Don't let us take positions of arrogance or to spout platitudes to our friends who aren't believers. Help us, God, to be humble. Those of us who are on the fence, God, give us the courage to entertain the notion that you are real and Jesus is who he said he was and our lives matter. All lives matter because you created all of us in your image and we see you in the face of everyone we come across. This is why we live, God. This is why we worship. Thank you for this table that you've set for us. Thank you for welcoming us. In Jesus' name, amen.